Um, If you want to turn to a passage of Scripture, turn to John chapter 10. We're going to be in a lot of different places this morning, uh, but that might be the place we spend the most time. Uh, For the last seven weeks, the focus of our Sunday morning teaching time has been an extended explanation of our church's core values. And though a topical sermon series like this is not our normal method of operation, I think this has been an enormously helpful study for us. And as I've stated, and as you've heard, the goal of this series has been to put practical handles on what it means for Enidimby Church to value the gospel, people, and mission. Those are our core values. They should be pounded into your head by now, gospel, people, and mission. And what we've done these last seven or eight weeks is we've taken those three sort of broad values and broken each of them into three parts. And we started with the gospel. And from John 3.16, we agreed on the importance of gospel doctrine. That was week one, gospel doctrine. What do we teach about the gospel? Then in week two, we marveled at gospel power, which is the fact that the gospel isn't just an idea. It's not just something that we agree with. No, the gospel is a force. The gospel has supernatural power. It says, Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who would believe. The gospel has the power to move anyone from death to life, from slave to free, from blind to sight. Then in week three, we thought hard about gospel culture. And the importance of gospel culture is this, that if we believe that God sent his son to save sinners by dying in their place, if that's what we believe about gospel doctrine, if you have agreed with God about your sinful condition and, and, and seen the power of God move you from death to life, then that should create an attitude in our church that, that oozes humility and safety and, and grace. And, and that attitude existing in each of us, it generates a certain culture a gospel culture. And it's a gospel culture that makes a church powerful. Not just popular, but powerful. And our our world needs powerful churches. The next three sermons were on people. We value people by loving them, connecting them, growing them. Loving people because God loves people. If God loves you, we want to love you. It's pretty much that simple. Connecting people because it's really easy to isolate ourselves. But God says it's, it's, it's not good for us to do that. As beings made in his image, he wants us to be in intense community with others. And then growing people. Growing people because the New Testament continually emphasizes the importance of growth and maturity and transformation in the Christian life. And then last week, we started looking at how we value mission. If you were here, Todd Aaron gave probably the best 30-minute talk on the biblical basis for mission that I think I've ever heard. And last Sunday evening, he went further and he talked about how, how, how he talked about the, what we would call the, the historical expansion of the church worldwide. He underscored that because the church is on mission. We don't think of it that way. We, we see all the bad news. We see all the terrible headlines. And we don't think that the church is growing, but it continues to grow in places that we probably don't think it's growing, places like the global south, which is basically the southern hemisphere, Latin America, Africa, Asia. The church is growing at explosive rates in the global south. 
He said, he shared this statistic that in 1915, the average Christian looked like a 50-year-old European male. Today, the average Christian in the world looks like a 28-year-old African female. It's a huge shift in just 100 years. He said that by 2050, of the 10 nations in the world with the most Christians, nine of them will be in the Southern Hemisphere. The only one in the Northern Hemisphere would be the United States, and the only reason that it would keep pace is not because of evangelization, but because of immigration from places like the Global South. And this week, I took some time, I followed up Todd's talks with some study of my own, and, and, and you might know this, but I'll share it anyway. Did you know that per day, per day, there are about 75,000 new Christians added to the church worldwide? 75,000 people. That's more than the population of Garfield County and Major County combined per day added to the church. Globally, about 3,500 new churches are formed every week. Week. The church in China adds about 30,000 new Christians a day. The global stats are staggering. People talk about the growth of Islam in the world, which is about 2.6%. Well, the growth rate of evangelicals in the world is double, almost double that of Islam. Now, they outnumber us, but we're catching them. We're catching them. Our world is seeing an amazing progress of the gospel. But at the same time, There are still unreached peoples in the world. And unreached peoples are those groups and nations that are cut off from gospel witness. These are people who don't know a Christian. They've never even heard the name of Jesus Christ, nor do they have access to a church, probably don't have a Bible in their language. Of the 7 billion people in our world, 1.5 billion fall into the category of unreached. So not just unevangelized, unreached. And what that means is these 1.5 billion, with a B, lost people, they're not unreached because they've rejected the gospel or rejected Jesus Christ. No, they don't even know who Jesus is. They've never even heard. And the kicker is less than 25% of our missionaries on the field are even attempting to reach that group. So I share all that to share this. We talk about mission as a core value of our church. Here's what you have to see. This is really the summation of what Todd talked about last week. It's not that God has a mission for his church. It's that God has a church for his mission. It's that God has a church for his, this is his mission. This is his project, and he's developed a church to fulfill it. So when we say mission is a core value of Enid MB, we're not saying to God, God, just come bless what we're doing with missions at Enid MB Church. No, 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 we're saying, God, we want to get on board with what you are doing to reach a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Show us where you want us to go. Show us where that needs to happen. So today I'm going to talk about mission under three headings. I want to show you from the Bible First, that God is a missionary God. This is almost a review, a short review of what Todd talked about last week. And then I want us to see that Jesus is a missionary Savior. 
And that'll be some encouragement from there in John chapter 10 where I told you to turn. And then we'll look at Paul as a missionary example. But first, a quotation from a man named J. Campbell White. This really tugged at my heart this week, especially as I thought about a church's call to mission. This is from one of his sermons. He preached that most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. Did you catch what White said there? Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. And what's that purpose? To bring glory to God through the salvation of sinners. You see, the glory of God is at stake in all of this. All this talking about missions. All this talking about reaching unreached people. The glory of God is at stake. That's what I told you two weeks ago. When God's glory is your joy, there's no richer satisfaction in life. Meaning, there's no more intense pleasure found anywhere than living for God's glory. It's why we were made. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the Westminster Confession. And the truth in the Westminster Confession was punctuated by a man named John Piper a few years ago who wrote in his classic book, Desiring God, God then is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So being satisfied in God results in a heart that aligns with God's heart. Which brings us to that first point in your notes. What's God's heart? God is a missionary God. God is a missionary God. How can I say that with conviction? Well, we see this in His Word. We see it in Scripture's promises, its prayers, its precepts, its proclamation. From its promises, we see in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is not the first promise in the Bible, but it's the first one of this kind. It reads, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this guy Abram, who would become Abraham, his family is going to be blessed so that all other families of the earth will be blessed. And there we have the trajectory of the Old Testament. Really interesting. This promise is echoed in Psalms 22. Psalms 22 is a messianic psalm, which is to say it speaks explicitly of Jesus Christ. Verses 27 and 28 of that psalm read this way, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. The ends of the earth there in verse 27, that can be translated the distant places. Even those in distant 
places are going to bow to the king of glory. Not just in subjugation, but in heartfelt, passionate worship. Those are the promises. Those are just two of the, of the dozens and dozens of promises that imply that God is a missionary God. We also see God as missionary God in Scripture's prayers. Back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Again, inherent to this prayer for blessing is the idea that the one blessed will then be a blessing. According to the Bible, the whole point of being on the receiving end of God's grace and favor is so that that grace and favor can be extended to other people. If we only loved the lost the same way that we love our standard of living, if we only love the nations to the degree that we love our comfortable way of life, if we only longed for God's glory to show up in those hard-to-reach places the way we longed for more and more financial security. The Bible's prayers reflect a missionary God. What do your prayers reflect? We also see God as a missionary God from Scripture's precepts. Precepts, that's just another way of saying commands. Psalm 96, the command is clear. It says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all peoples. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And then moving to the proclamations of the New Testament, of course, the two most famous from Jesus, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in Acts 1.8, Jesus doubles down on that proclamation. The writer Luke records what Jesus said to his followers. He said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. There's that phrase again, to the distant places. So this is God's design in world history that people from all nations and tribes and languages come to worship and treasure Christ above everything. Therefore, every Christian, young or old, must care about what God cares about. Missions is not a small part of, of God's eternal purposes. Missions service is central to God's eternal purpose. Therefore, to be distant from the mission of God is to be, in effect, distant from God. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible goes on to reveal how Jesus is a missionary Savior. Again, turn to John chapter 10 if you're not there already. Jesus is a missionary Savior. In these verses that I'm about to read, we see a truth about the nature of Jesus and then I think we see three encouragements that, that flow from that nature of Jesus. I'm going to read John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. John recording the words of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so, be, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Jesus is a shepherd. But not just any shepherd, he's a good shepherd. And not just any good shepherd, he's the good shepherd. And Jesus is proclaiming this about himself in, in the context of an argument with a group called the Pharisees. And so the implication of what he's saying is they, the religious leaders in Israel, these Pharisees, they have failed to properly shepherd Israel. They have failed to lead Israel in the ways of the Lord. They have completely closed Israel off to other nations. They despise the Gentile nations and peoples. In their mind, there is no blessing for those people. There is no salvation for those outside of Israel. That's why in another passage, Jesus calls these religious leaders blind guides. Now, I don't know much about sheep. I'm certainly not a shepherd. But would you want a blind person shepherding your sheep? No. Because that blind person, he can't protect them from thieves. He can't chase away the predators. He can't distinguish them and know them and, and observe them if they're sick or injured or, or something else. Those in religious leadership were to lead and guard the people as shepherds. Problem is, they were blind shepherds in Jesus' estimation. And so Jesus points this out by saying, you're not the good shepherds. I am the good shepherd. And so then what distinguishes Jesus as the good shepherd? What makes a shepherd good? Well, first, he knows his sheep. The relationship is described as fairly intimate. Verse 15 says it's an intimacy similar to Jesus' relationship to the Father. That's how closely believers are drawn into relationship with Christ. So close that it's comparable to the Father and the Son and their eternal relationship within the Godhead. So if you've trusted in Christ, you need to trust that you are fully known. Jesus knows you. You may hide from people or do a really good job of always appearing sort of pulled together, or maybe you're, you're, you're just scared that, that people are going to sort of search in and, and, and find out how big a phony you really are. I, I don't know, but I do know you are fully known by Christ. He knows you. He knows your distinguishing marks. He knows where your wool is not lily white. He knows why you limp. He knows you, and he loves you. How do I know he loves you? Well, there's this other distinguishing feature of the good shepherd here. It says that he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for them. Two things about the good shepherd laying down his life. First, his death is substitutionary. That is, Jesus died not for his own sin, but for your sin. He died in your place. And the meaning of that is this. We are sinners. As sinners, we deserve to die, both physically and spiritually. But Christ willingly died in our place, taking our punishment so that we might live. This is what is meant by vicarious or substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. Second thing about his laying his, his life down for us is that his death was specific. 
That is, he died for particular people, people designated as his sheep. Who are these specific sheep? I I don't know exactly who they are. I know their distinguishing marks are repentance and faith in Jesus. That's one way of knowing who they are, the people who exhibit repentance and faith. I also know that later on in the chapter he says that it is the Father who has given those sheep to him, and no one will snatch them out of the Father's hand. So these sheep are died in the place of, and the eternal life that's been granted to them can never be taken away. That is pretty astonishing. The good shepherd's posture toward the sheep is intimate, it's sacrificial, it's faithful. But the encouragement for missions, that's found in verse 16. In fact, I'd say that John 10, 16 is the great missionary text in the Gospel of John. This text is full of hope and power for missions. And we need powerful encouragement when engaging in the mission's task. What am I talking about? Look there. It says, Jesus has other sheep outside the present fold. Now, in the context of John chapter 10, Jesus is saying he has other sheep outside the fold of Judaism, which means a couple of different things. First, it means those people who are blind or leprous or ceremonially defiled, those people who had been put out of the synagogue because the the religious establishment had considered them unclean or unfit for worship, those outside the present fold, Jesus has sheep amongst those groups. But even further than that, consistent with the heart of the Father that we read about just a minute ago, he has sheep entirely outside the fold of Israel. Into the other nations, Gentiles. Jesus has Gentiles that he calls his sheep. And notice, he doesn't say, I'm making salvation available to people in these groups. No, he definitively says there are other sheep outside the fold. They are out there and they belong to me. I am their good shepherd. So what's the implication of that? It means as you go, go in confidence. You can go in confidence. It may look impossible to see one come to Christ to see a Muslim or an atheist family member or or your sin-hardened neighbor come to Christ. It may seem impossible, but remember, Christ has other sheep. Not just the folks in this room. It's not just the folks in other churches here in town. No, no, no. He has other sheep. There's actually a great record of this in Acts chapter 18, Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. Paul is incredibly discouraged. He is in Corinth, and there is There is great opposition coming against him and the gospel. He's fearing for his life. And so this is what happens in the midst of that. In verse 9, the Lord shows up. He says to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man shall attack you to harm you. And here's the kicker. Here's what the Lord says to Paul. For I have many people in this city. For I have many people in this city. What's that mean? It means God had other sheep. He knew who the sheep were, and he was going to use Paul to reach them. Go in confidence. Why? He has other sheep. It's not just us. Hallelujah, it's not just us. 
He has other sheep. And if that weren't enough, look at the phrase there in verse 16. I must bring them also. So we can go in even further confidence because there's no possibility of failure. Jesus must bring them. And how does he bring them? Again, it's there in verse 16. They hear his voice. So the other sheep he must bring, they will hear his voice. So how do missionaries reach people for the gospel? It's not because they're so smart or their acumen is so high or they're they're so highly trained. No, they reach people for the gospel because God is a missionary God and Jesus is a missionary Savior and he has other sheep. They don't reach people because they're really good preachers or really convincing apologists. No, missionaries reach people because Jesus has other sheep that he must bring. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that give you confidence? This is why missionary effort is never in in vain. It has the Spirit of God fueling it. And if the Spirit of God is at work, then there can be no failure. I just used a passage there involving Paul from Acts 18. Let's, Let's get into that last point in your notes. Paul is a missionary example. Paul is the clearest picture we have in the Bible of a man answering God's call to reach the nations. There are lots of examples, but I think Paul is the clearest example, and we have the most material from him, so it's easy to focus upon his actions and upon his life. In Acts 26, Paul recounts what happened upon his conversion, that he, he, he received his purpose in the kingdom when he was converted. And this is a flashback. Paul has done lots of ministry leading up to Acts chapter 26, but he's flashing back. He's telling his story of when Jesus showed up and called him into service. And in Acts 26 verse 16, these are the words of Jesus being stated to Paul. Christ says to him, rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and of what I have revealed to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there we have Paul's purpose. He was delivered out of Judaism, called out of the fold, to reach those that were even further out of the fold. And what that did was that gave Paul just remarkable perspective. You read his letters and you see this man with remarkable perspective. This missionary enterprise was so clear and so compelling to Paul that he would endure anything to remain faithful to it. In Philippians 3, he said, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ. Suffered the loss of all things. It's a pretty broad category Paul uses there. But he's lost it and he doesn't really care. That, all those things that he's lost, those are rubbish, they're refuse to him anyway because he's gaining Christ, and he's seeing others gain Christ. And so he can forsake all things if that's his purpose, if that's what's being fulfilled in front of him. In 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I do it all. What is all? I do it all. I, I, I do all of this. I, I receive the imprisonments, and I receive the beatings, and I receive the mockings and the trials. 
and the shipwrecks and just go on and on through Paul's life. I, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Stunning perspective from Paul. Nothing else mattered to Paul. Only seeing sinners come to know Christ captivated the heart and mind of Paul. And you're like, well, Jay, that's Paul. Quit using Paul as an example. I I can't live up to Paul. I mean, come on. Okay, I get that. But you know people. You know people whose hearts are captivated. There's a guy named Peter Cameron Scott. Peter Cameron Scott, he was born in 1867. He founded the African Inland Mission. Scott had twice tried to, uh, to serve in Africa, but he had to come home both times with malaria. And then he took a third attempt to serve in Africa, and that was especially joyful because he was joined by his brother John. But that joy evaporated as John fell victim to the fever as well. And so Peter buried John all by himself. But at the grave, Peter Cameron Scott rededicated himself to preach the gospel in Africa. But again, as things went on, his health broke and he had to return to England and he was just utterly discouraged. But as he was in London, something wonderful happened. He needed a fresh source of inspiration and he found it at a tomb in Westminster Abbey. It was a tomb that held the remains of a man who had inspired so many in their missionary service. And the tomb, the tomb was David Livingstone's. David Livingstone was a missionary to Africa. And the inspiration Scott needed was found on the inscription that was covering Livingstone's grave marker. And the inscription was this. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. John ten sixteen. So needless to say, Peter Cameron Scott, he would return to Africa. And the African Inland Mission was established. It still operates to this day. It has seen tens of thousands of people come to know Jesus Christ. He endured much. He forsook all. He followed in the example and in the way of the apostles before him, and tens of thousands have come to know Christ because of his faithfulness. So God is a missionary God. Jesus is a missionary Savior. Paul is a missionary Example. You know what else? As I conclude, you know what else? The church is the missionary means. The church is the missionary means. God is only going to reach the nations through the church. He is only going to reach the other sheep through the faithful sending and preaching that's done by the church. If, if we believe what I have just taken about 30 minutes to preach then we have to value mission. Mission is God's heart. It is Christ's heart. It is Paul's heart. It must be our heart. It must be heart, uh, our heart. So, so think about it. What are some ways that you can get on board with this mission's value? What can you do? I mean, you're sitting there. Maybe you're stirred up. Maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe you're going, okay, this is great, but what do I do now? Well, how about you go on a short-term mission trip? Yeah, it's going to take some time. It's going to take a little bit of money, but, but go. Go to Peru. Go to Niger. Go, go with the Della Plains when they go to Montreal or, or into Canada during the summers. There's tons of other opportunities. Come to me. We'll find a way for you to go. Just go. How about this? Start giving generously toward missions. Your money follows what you treasure. 
It does. If you, if you treasure the lost coming to Christ, then give to missions. It fits. It works. How about this? Develop a relationship with a missionary on the field. Start emailing them. Start telling them how you're praying for them. Ask them how they can be prayed for. Just develop a relationship. Missionaries are starving for this. So many people um, just sort of read the prayer letters and, and, and throw them away and never really meaningfully engage. Start reading up on missions. Read biographies about missionaries. Right, girls? Yeah, my girls are just devouring all these missionary biographies, these, these little YWAM books that, uh, that, that you, can, you can pick up. Even Mandy's been reading them like crazy. It's just stirring the hearts I, I can see of my two daughters and my wife. Just read up on missions. Biographies are a great place to start. Befriend a foreign family in your school or in your neighborhood or, or at a business here in town. You, you know where those families are. Befriend them. Engage with them. Be intentional with them. Here's one. This, this one's easy. Grab a Samaritan's Purse shoe box today. Be intentional about praying over that box, who that box ends up going to, what effect it might have on their life or on their family's life. Sponsor a compassion kid. Roger mentioned compassion in his report about their vision trip. Mandy and I have been able to do that for, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, sponsoring a, a kid from Compassion. We've seen some of them age out and, and go on with their lives and gotten new kids, but it's been great to be able to pray for those kids. And now that I know there's a lot of them in Peru, I want to get one in Peru so I can go visit him and, or her and, and, and see them face to face. Here's another one. Walk across the street. Talk to your neighbors. Start taking a lost coworker to lunch. Start calling that lost family member. God has put you in contact with certain people for a reason. Tune in to those reasons. Because folks, there is no plan B. There's no plan B. God is going to reach the nations. He's made that promise, and he's going to call out the other sheep because he must bring them, but he's going to do it by using human means. That's his plan, and that seems foolish to me. It seems absurd, but that's his plan. And you can either trust him in that, that he can use you, or you you can conclude that he won't. And if you arrive at that place that he just won't, or that you just don't want to, if you stay at that place, then I think you can just resign yourself to being a typical Christian, one who only prays for God to bless them, who only has friends who are already believers, who thinks missions has to be somebody else's burden. Don't be that guy. Be a goer. And you can be a goer as you go. You don't have to leave to go. You can go in your neighborhood and you can go to the nations. Be a goer. Be a sender. Send by giving. Send by praying. Send by corresponding with missionaries. Be a goer. Be a sender. Or you can be disobedient. You can be completely out of step with the heart of God for the nations, completely out of rhythm with the heart of the good shepherd who has other sheep who are not of this fold. Those are your three options today. As Acts 4.12 says it, it says, For there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men will be saved. Guys, all men are lost. All mankind is lost. And Christ is the only way. That is the truth. All men are lost. Christ is the only way. If we believe that, we'll be people on mission. I think we will. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom and the riches that it contains. We thank you for those places that it shows us who you are. We thank you for those places where it comforts us, where it inspires us, where it fuels us. And today, we thank you for those places where it challenges us. God, I pray that as as we dig deeper into gospel doctrine and we see more and more of the gospel's power on display and, and more and more a gospel culture being developed in this place, Lord, I pray that out of that, we would see the gospel go out from here. That individually, we would carry it to the places that you have put us. And then collectively, in a very intentional way, we would want to see it go to unreached peoples. We would want to see it go to Niger through church planting efforts and water well drilling. And we want to see it go to Peru and building up and mobilizing the church there. And we would want to see it to go to Brazil and to the Middle East and into the Muslim world. That, that we would want to see the gospel not just stay here and provide richness for our lives and a culture of beauty in our church, but to provide salvation for those who are perishing because all men are perishing without Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, if we hold that message, if we have that message, give us a heart to share it, to spread it out far and wide, to be a people on on mission for you. That's your heart. That's your son's heart. That's the heart of that you're calling every believer toward. So thank you for this time and the place and the people that have gathered. Bless us as we conclude this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.